But if you've, if you've got your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. And we're going to have a look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and from verse 15 to the end of that chapter. I'm guessing that these verses are probably well known to us. As Pastor John Stott once said, these are words that are written in gold in our Bibles. Let's have a look. The Word of God says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God himself who justifies. Who would condemn us? Certainly not Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. There's so much that we could look at in those verses, but I want just to highlight one verse from the passage today. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Different versions of the Bible translate the Greek text of this verse slightly differently, but all of them put three things closely together. Three sets of two words, all things, God works, and for good. So let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, all things. And there are actually a couple of points that Paul makes here in regard to all things. Firstly, Paul tells us that all things happen to those who love God. In other words, the same things that happen to everybody else in the world also happen to Christians. Uh, Some people have the idea that if I'm a Christian and if I love God, then nothing really terrible will happen to me. Horrendous things happen in the world, but if I'm a Christian, then slightly bad things might happen to me, but nothing too horrific. That's not what Paul says here. Paul begins this section by speaking about our present sufferings. And towards the end of these verses, he lists some of the things that God's people face in this world. Trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. All the things that happen to everybody else in the world will happen to you if you're a Christian. And I think that's important to know because otherwise when times of trouble come along, we immediately think, I must have done something bad. God must be angry with me. And we bear two lots of pain. We bear the pain of what is happening and we bear the confusion of why it is happening. No, all things happen to everybody on earth. All things happen to Christians because we live in a fallen world. It's important to remember that all things happened to Jesus. The Bible describes Jesus as a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. And the only completely innocent and righteous person ever to walk this earth experienced firsthand trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. All the same things that happen to everybody else in the world will also happen to Christians. And even worse... Christians experience another level of difficulty precisely because of the fact that they follow Jesus. In verse 17, Paul says, If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. You see, because of who he was and the message he preached, Jesus faced rejection desertion, attempted murder on more than one occasion, and finally, arrest, beating, mockery, flogging, crucifixion, and death. 
And in the same way, his family, you and me, will suffer if we live for him and if we speak for him. In a very real sense, we get to be like Jesus and experience his suffering. So all things, and even more than all things, happen to Christians. Secondly, in terms of all things, Paul tells us that not all things are good things. In verse 22, he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In this sense of of groaning, Paul is speaking about the pain that we experience in living in a broken world. All things in this world are not good. And all of us, at some level, intuitively know this. M. Scott Peck's famous book, The Road Less Traveled, begins with the short sentence, Life is difficult. Uh, I hope some of you have watched the movie The Princess Bride, which is full of marvelous one-liners. But at one point in the movie, the hero Wesley says to the heroine Buttercup, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is trying to sell you something. This world is not the way it was intended to be. And so all of creation groans, and we too groan at times in a world that has become so difficult to live in. Again, it's important to remember that when he was on earth, Jesus experienced this groan. In John chapter 11, we read how Jesus stands outside the tomb of his best friend Lazarus, and he weeps. And John tells us that as Jesus approaches the tomb, he is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The word that John uses here refers to the snorting of a horse. In other words, it's speaking of deep, strong emotion, sorrow, indignation, even anger. You see, as Jesus watched his friends weeping and wailing outside Lazarus' tomb, he too felt this groan that at times we feel that this is wrong, this is not right, this is not how life was intended to be. Just to say that this groan that we experience in living in a broken world is very important because it's a signpost to us. If we truly lived in a random universe and we're just products of millions of years of evolution, if there really is no right and wrong because morals and values are just social constructs, then why should we be surprised or outraged or groan at the suffering we experience in this world? Shouldn't we just expect it and get used to it? Life is random. Why do we complain? The former atheist C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He was speaking about time, but it refers to suffering as well. He says, do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, wouldn't that strongly suggest that they'd not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? And so if we complain about time or suffering, what does that suggest? 
It suggests that we've not always been, or will not always be, purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And then thirdly, in terms of all things, it's important to see that the Bible doesn't say that all things work out. That's a common misconception, that in some general way, God will work everything out for those who love him. Uh, remember the quote from the movie, The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel? Uh, everything will be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. <laughs> That's not what the Bible is saying here. It doesn't mean that all things are going to work out in some sense. It doesn't say that. It says rather that God works. And that brings us then to the second two words that Paul puts together in these verses. All things and second, God works. Christians experience all things. All things are not good. All things don't work out. But God works. And the incredible promise for us from this passage is that God is doing something in our lives all the time and even in the most tragic and sorrowful and heart-wrenching circumstances. Not all things are good. Some things are downright evil, but God is working even in and through those things. Now again, how can we possibly say that? Well, to believe the promise, we once again look to Jesus, and in particular, Jesus on the cross. It's interesting, when you read through the Gospels and the accounts of Jesus' death and the circumstances that lead up to it, there's a little Greek word that the Gospel writers keep on using. In English, it's translated as handed over. And so we read that Judas handed over Jesus to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders in turn handed Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate handed Jesus over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. But that same little Greek word is the one that is used here in verse 32, where Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, handed him over for us all. What that means then is that all of the unjust and evil actions of Judas and the Jewish leaders and Pilate and the soldiers, all that that did was actually to accomplish God's plan of giving up his son for us all. In fact, the Bible states this explicitly. After Jesus' resurrection and ascension in Acts chapter 4, Peter and the other disciples pray and they say, Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. In other words, Satan and all the forces of evil work against Jesus to destroy him. And yet in so doing, they bring about the very thing that they're trying to avoid, the salvation of the world and their ultimate defeat. In other words, God's power is so great that he's able to use evil itself 
a little bit, uh, uh, he, he uses evil to, to defeat itself, uh, a little bit like a good judo fighter uses his own opponent's strength to defeat him. God takes the most evil situation that this planet has ever seen, the death of his son on a cross, and he uses it for the salvation of the world. But it's not just someone as special as Jesus for whom this is true. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament, someone who experiences terrible injustice and pain and wrongdoing over decades. Out of jealousy, his brothers sell him as a slave to some Ishmaelite slave traders. They in turn sell him to an Egyptian man called Potiphar. Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him of attempted rape, and so he ends up in prison. He's left there for, for ages. And yet right at the end of the story, after Joseph has risen up to, to be second in charge of all of Egypt, when, when Joseph looks back and he looks at the whole story, he says to his family and to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The evil and the indifferent actions of Joseph's brothers and the Ishmaelite slave traders and Potiphar's wife simply work together to accomplish God's plan, to save his people from the famine, to preserve a nation through whom eventually will come the Lord Jesus, who will save all humanity from their sin. We've got the assurance from this passage that although the actions of the brothers and of Potiphar's wife and the jailer were evil, Yet God is at work to bring about his purpose. In his commentary on this passage, Pastor Tim Keller writes this, All things really means all things. So it includes even our backsliding and our sin. Now sin is always bad, always a terrible thing, and we will always live to regret its painful consequences in our lives. But God is so great that he weaves it into our ultimate good. He can use even our sins and failures to humble us and teach us a right view of ourselves and a greater appreciation of Christ. He makes use of sin to show Christians our weakness and frailty and he even works through sin to save his people. This doesn't excuse our sin, but it does cause us to look for how God is working through it. I think it's also significant that Paul says we know God works rather than we see God works. Sometimes we do get to see what God is doing, but sometimes we don't. <laughs> Some of you will know that the lovely uh, lady called Joni Erickson Tada. She's a great encouragement to me in this regard. As a teenager, uh, Joni was involved in a diving accident and she became a quadriplegic. quadriplegic. Uh, she'd been a, a really sporty teenager, and so to lose the use of her body was incredibly traumatic for her. In fact, it still is. Uh, in a recent interview, she said that she still wakes up some mornings and cries and says, I can't do quadriplegia today. And yet Johnny admits that if she hadn't had that accident, she would never have been drawn so close to God or being used by God to the same extent in the lives of others. In that same interview, she says this, God takes no pleasure in my spinal cord injury, 
but he loves the way he is changing me in it and encouraging others through it. I would not trade this intimacy with God, this sweetness, this nearness, this tenderness, this preciousness of faith come alive in my life. I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking. So sometimes we do see how God uses tragic circumstances, but mostly we don't. Sometimes we will never know this side of eternity, what God has achieved. But we can be assured that he is achieving something, and one day we will see it. And that brings us to the third pair of words that Paul uses in this verse. The words, for good. All things, God works for good. Now I think it's very important to consider the nature of this good. And to do that, you need to keep verses 28 and 29 close together. Paul says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. The good that God is working isn't material benefit or our health or our wealth. It's not even our happiness. God is working in and through all things to make us like Jesus. Again, to quote uh, Tim Keller's commentary, verse 29 is an astounding statement. It means that God has a master design, his son, and now every circumstance, all things are designed to shape, polish, melt, smooth, sculpt, frame, cast, and contour us into that master design. He's pouring us into the mold of Christ's perfect greatness. The idea of conformed doesn't mean a superficial likeness, but something total. We're being remade from the inside out, from the depths. God is making us as loving, noble, true, wise, strong, good, joyful, and kind as Jesus is. If we know and love God, we, we come to know him and we are immediately justified, we're made right with him. And then the rest of our life is this process of sanctification, God changing us to look more and more like Jesus. And one day we will finally and totally be glorified when we die and we see Jesus face to face. As Paul says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul also says in verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And it's so interesting, our glorification, finally being made perfect, is future. It happens when we see Jesus. But Paul is so certain that this is going to happen that he speaks of it in the past tense. Those he justified, made right with himself through the death of Jesus, he also glorified. It's guaranteed, so certain, that Paul speaks of it in the past tense. One day, you won't have to put up with me and my difficulty anymore. I will be perfect. Thank you very much for your patience. 
There's a wonderful scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Lord of the Rings, where it's towards the end of the book, uh, Sam Gamgee, Frodo's companion, wakes up, having been rescued from the fiery mountain, and the person who rescues him is the wizard Gandalf, who Sam thought was dead. Let me read the conversation to you. When Sam awoke, he found that he was lying on some soft bed. Where are we? he asked. And a voice spoke softly behind him. In the land of Ithlian and in the keeping of the king, and he waits for you. With that, Gandalf stood before him, robed in white. Well, Master Samwise, how do you feel? he said. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? Such a great question. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And as one writer puts it, the answer of Christianity to that is yes. One day everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. And so you and I can face this new week with complete confidence, as Paul says, convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, we could summarize this passage then in the words of the great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards. Our bad things turn out to be good things. Our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. Our bad things turn out to be good things. Our good things can never be lost, and the best things are yet to come. But there is just one final pair of words that I need to mention as we close. All of these promises that God works in all things for good aren't given as blanket statements for everyone. Paul says that these things are for those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. As one writer puts it, if you hear the call of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you come to God loving him through Jesus Christ, if you trust God for the forgiveness of your sins because of the death of Christ, if you receive from him the free gift of righteousness by faith alone, then these promises are for you. And it's at this point that we have a choice. God loves us. And he invites us to come to him. But it's always an invitation. And in fact, this is the greatest gift that God offers each of us this morning. It's not the promise that he is working things for our good. It's not the promise that ultimately we are safe. It's not even the promise of heaven. The greatest gift God offers us this morning is himself. If we go back to the very first verse in our passage, Paul writes, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Interesting that still today uh, in Israel, little children call their fathers Abba, Daddy. 
Uh, we were in Tel Aviv airport recently, and it brought tears to my eyes to see ordinary little kids calling out, Abba, Abba, you know, their dad's coming through, uh, Abba, Abba, just excitement, love. And Paul uses a very strong word here. He says that we cry, Abba, Father. It's a word that expresses deep emotion. And as one writer puts it then, it implies real knowledge of God. That God is no longer to us a distant God. He's not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, or doctrinally, but a God we know experientially, joyfully, intimately, continually. So interesting that we only have one instance of Jesus addressing his father, our father, as Abba. Do you remember when it was? It's in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14. Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And later, in that moment of deepest darkness on the cross, when he took the sin of the world upon himself, my sin and your sin, Jesus gave up the right to call God his Father and instead cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who alone truly had the right to call God his Father, gave up that right on the cross so that you and I, who have no right whatsoever to call God our Father, may now boldly, confidently, lovingly cry out, Abba, Father. And so the most important question for us as we close is not, do you know the promise of this verse? But do you know the person behind the promise in this verse?